Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I have been hearing about underground and undersea bases for many years. I really didn't think it was true until I read our guest books. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Sauter is with us today. He is the author of the book Underwater and Underground Basis, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, and the Richard Sauter Briefings, and Kundalini Tales. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome our guest who's taken many, many years to bring us the credibility and the research details of how and why this is true. Welcome, Richard Sauter, to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. I'm very happy to be with you. I've been interested in this subject for a long, long time on my own 25-year mission, and it really makes sense to me to look into the details of the patents that were filed by individuals and agencies that had advanced knowledge in the area of magnetics, technologies that have to do with elevators, technologies that have to do with breathing apparatuses, different ways to breathe under the water, for high-speed trains, tunnel trains, shuttles. One of the things I loved about Hidden Plain Sight, which I just read, is that you detail names, patents, names of the technologies that have evolved over time that us in the public aren't aware that these technologies have been around a long time and that we could have much easier transportation systems that didn't have to rely on the kind of transportation that we have now. So I'm excited because what got validated to me reading your book is how far the technology has really advanced and that a lot of what we need is here when it comes to transportation. And I know there's difficult and heavy parts of that knowledge of what's going on when one finds out there's underground and underwater bases, which we'll talk about. But I'm delighted to know that we really have what we need when it comes to transportation. We have to figure out a way to get the people that have that technology to allow us to use it. Well, you know, that's true. Starting back in the 1940s or even in the 1930s, um, great technological breakthroughs began to be made. And I would actually say from about 1930 through 1970, there were vast uh, technological advancements that were made by the Nazis, by the Americans, and by others that have been held back from the human race. Let me say that when I moved out to the southwestern United States in the late 1980s, for the first time I heard people that I ran into in the conduct of my everyday life talking about uh, secret underground bases and tunnels. And I found this very interesting and unusual. I, I didn't know what to make of it. A few years later, when I had some, some time in my schedule, I did some preliminary research into this. At the time, I was uh, uh, finishing up a Ph.D. in political science. And I did some research and discovered that there were underground bases many of them run by the United States military, but not all of them. And I wrote a short article then for UFO magazine in Los Angeles in which I said, you know, uh, indeed there are uh, underground bases, and some of them are, are quite large with and can, can accommodate hundreds or even a couple of thousand people 
uh, deep underground in some degree of creature comfort. And uh, there were also rumors I'd heard about alleged aliens being underground in some of these bases, along with covert elements of the American military. And in the article I said, you know, um, I can't say anything about that aspect of these stories, but I can say there certainly are underground bases, and, and, and judging by the evidence I found, a good number of them. And that was from what I was able to discover in the first cut at the available open uh, literature, government literature, scientific literature, engineering literature. So that's what I said in the in the fall of 1992, in a small article in a, an obscure magazine with a small circulation. And I felt like I had exhausted the topic that I had finished with it at that point. Well, not quite two months later, I was awakened from a deep sleep during the middle of the night and over the holidays in the week before Christmas and New Year's. In the last week of December 1992, I was suddenly awakened in the middle of the night and was laying there in the dark in my bed, looking up at the ceiling with my eyes open, and suddenly I heard a voice in my ear that spoke very quietly, yet matter-of-factly to me. It was the voice of an adult male Caucasian speaking, speaking uh, normal, uh, normally accented North American English, and he said to me, the underground bases are real. And then he went on to elaborate and to tell me that there were uh, all of these uh, large underground bases with secret programs and projects going on, that people were living down there, uh, working and living down there, and that most people had no idea that this was happening. And as he spoke, he conveyed to me that there was uh, uh, sophisticated technology involved, machinery, that there were corporations and companies involved, uh, there was a lot of high-tech, uh, big money, and, and so forth. And as he was talking, I was thinking, my word, how can all of this be going on and most virtually everyone have no idea that it's happening? So even then, I determined that um, I'm going to look into this and see if I can find a paper trail and find out if what this guy is telling me is true or false. Well, after two or three minutes of speaking to me like that, he abruptly stopped as abruptly as he had begun. I never thought that I heard the voice of an angel or a demon or an extraterrestrial or God or Jesus or that I was losing my mind. From the first second, I understood intuitively that I was hearing the voice of a real flesh-and-blood man who was speaking to my inner ear using some kind of advanced uh, electronic technology. And indeed, I did find a suite of patents, uh, one of which I reproduce in my book, Kundalini Tales, that explicitly describes a transmitter for using pulsed microwaves to transmit audible sound, intelligible sound, right into the auditory cortex of the human brain. So indeed, uh, the technology exists to, to transmit voices right into the human mind. So are you saying that whatever came into your inner ear, you're saying was transmitted by what? 
By who? By a, a real electronic transmitter, most likely a pulsed microwave transmitter. Because I was why? Why to you? Why not to me? Well, because I because you hadn't written an article about underground bases and tunnels in a magazine. So I surmise, and I believe correctly, that someone on the inside of this secret network of underground bases and tunnels, with access to high tech uh, technology. Uh, probably read my article and said, you know, here's a guy who understands there's something going on, but he just doesn't understand understand how big of a tiger he's grasped the tail of. And so let's let's me talk to him and uh, see if I can prod him to do a little more research, to dig deeper into this and to write and to publish more on this topic. In other words, someone... Uh, and this has become clear to me as I have pursued my research further. There are people who are working in this realm uh, who evidently do not like everything they see, do not like everything they do or are asked to do, do not like everything that goes on, do not approve of all of these policies, projects, and, and programs. And I've met more than one person like that in the course of my research. Uh, some of them have told me astonishing things. And I'm now satisfied that one such person contacted me via unconventional means and understand that the technology that exists in the black world is truly science fiction-like. The satellites that the NSA has, that the CIA has, that the Air Force has, that the National Reconnaissance Office has, can target any square meter of real estate on the Earth at any time. and the electronic equipment on these satellites is also mind-bending. Uh, they can literally beam a radio or a microwave transmission to any square meter on the planet's surface at any time. So it would be um, child's play for any of these agencies to target my house and my bedroom in the middle of any night and to beam a transmission to me. Now, the hard part would be for any given individual to commandeer five minutes of said satellite's time and direct its transmitters towards my uh, humble little uh, uh, alley uh, student ghetto apartment at that time. Uh, but the, the easy part would be um, sending the transmission. The hard part would be getting the satellite time because those are expensive machines. However, if you're a plugged-in insider inside the black world, uh, I suppose you would have your ways and would be able to finagle a few minutes of a satellite's time. Um, or you could do it with a truck parked out back in the alley or with an helicopter uh, hovering overhead. There's more than one way that it could be done. The transmitters do exist. I've seen the patents. Uh, I've been told on the quiet by an ex-military person that they do have them, but they use them in compartmentalized black projects. Now... I went out the next day and started immediately looking for a paper trail that would verify what this man told me. I have found that paper trail in spades. In fact, I found so much paper that it has astonished even me. And I went on to document even more underground bases than I knew about in November of, 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 of 1992. And I've been told of yet more. Uh, secret installations, and I found documentation, and I discussed this 
and Hidden in Plain Sight from Lloyd Duchamp, who was the um, assistant director for um, uh, construction for the Army Corps of Engineers back in the 1980s, who gave a uh, public speech at a seminar uh, being held, an academic and industry seminar being held at uh, at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the topic of the of the conference was uh, underground excavation. And he gave a, a, a speech at that conference, delivered a paper in which he said, you know, um, the Army Corps of Engineers has, has made some very interesting and unusual underground projects, uh, bases on the order of what uh, were done, was done uh, for NORAD under Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. Cheyenne Mountain's fascinating. It's been there a long time, hasn't it? Yes, and it's, yes, and it's a big one. It was built back in the late 50s, early 1960s. The Army Corps of Engineers did help make that. It's a major, uh, deeply buried, very sophisticated underground base. And what Lloyd Dusha said in his talk in 1987 at MIT was, look, uh, we've built other facilities like this, but they're, you know, black budget, essentially. They're top secret. I can't tell you about them. I can only tell you that we have made them, and they're unusual and interesting. And that's all I can say about it. So there you have, uh, from the horse's mouth, a direct public admission that the military does have secret underground bases above and beyond what we can read about in the daily newspaper. Uh, in the daily newspaper, what we do read about or can read about, if you read carefully over the years, are such facilities as, of course, the giant NORAD base under Cheyenne Mountain in North, North in Colorado, but also um, the Mount Weather Base that's run by FEMA, which is in the Blue Ridge Mountains about an hour's drive west of Washington, D.C., or you can read um, about the military's Site R complex, which is also uh, a large, very technologically technologically sophisticated, uh, deeply buried underground base uh, beneath a mountain that's on the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania, just out, just in the small town of Cascade, Maryland, and that's run by the military for the Pentagon. It's the Pentagon's alternate uh, command center. It's their, um, it's, it's, it's the so-called underground Pentagon, if you will. It's very large. It's very deeply buried. It's very high-tech, uh, sci-fi-like almost, cutting-edge, technologically cutting-edge, deeply buried facility. My understanding is that that has been enlarged over the last year or two. Um, and so those are the, some, of, some of the ones that you can find uh, pretty easily in the public record that are not secret, but there are others that are secret, that are top secret, and Lloyd Dushaw has told us, so that's how we know. I love that it's verifiable in your book, rather than your story, or not that your story isn't interesting, your story is extremely interesting, that in the 1960s, LBJ had executive orders or documents talking about building a 3,500-foot base in the D.C. area. Can you speak about that? Oh, yes. The, the plans for that are documented from the highest levels of the uh, last weeks of the um, John F. Kennedy presidency and then after his assassination in uh, November of, of 1963, 
uh, that the paper trail continues at the highest levels of the American government over into the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration. So the plans for this started in um, 1963 in the JFK administration, and then after his murder, continued right over into the LBJ administration. Indeed, those plans, and I detail that, I produced um, several of the memos uh, by the highest le- from the highest levels of these two administrations in my book. How did you get all these documents? Seriously, didn't it take a long time? Yes, I do a lot of research, and I've been at it for years. I visit archives, um, uh, data repositories, uh, research libraries uh, of, of all kinds, private and public and quasi-government and governmental. And I just do a lot of serious nuts and bolts research looking for the paper trail. And and 99.99999% of my information comes right off the public record. You know, that's a docu- document, documented information I have. Of course, I also get some, some leaks here and there from people uh, who've worked on the inside or know about what happens on the inside. But I have to say, these plans uh, do explicitly discuss building a manned base 3,500 feet deep beneath Washington, D.C., with high-speed elevator access straight down from the surface, zooming straight down 3,500 feet underground. Now, this is from circa 1963-1964. So that's, what, almost half a century ago. And the idea was to have high-speed elevator access from the White House, from the State Department, and from the Pentagon that would go down uh, to this very deep level where there would then be access tunnels that would carry uh, personnel and people from the government to uh, the manned facility itself. Now, it's interesting to me that um, just a few years after these plans were made, uh, the Washington, D.C. metro system construction began and continued right up until just a few years ago. So for a period of about 35 years, you had this ongoing um, underground tunnel construction uh, project for construction of the United States, uh, of the of, of the Washington, D.C. area subway system, underground subway system. Such a project would make a perfect cover for constructing yet another tunnel system, one or more, that would be even more deeply buried because you could use the one construction system to take men, equipment, materials, machinery, including tunnel boring machines, um, underground. And then once underground, they would stay underground for years or even decades in some cases. And so you could shield uh, one project under the guise of building another. I wish they had used that in Chile to get the miners out, that tunnel boring machine. It wasn't necessary. What they used was perfectly good. Really? And, and worked just fine. Um, <clears throat> there's no need to kill a gnat with a, with a 12-gauge shotgun if a fly swatter will do just as well. <laughs> I just more meant so they didn't have to be underground for two months. Well, what they used was sufficient to the task. Um, Got it. But the, um, the point is I, I strongly suspect that's what has happened because, as I discuss in Hidden in Plain Sight, there is... Uh, circumstantial evidence to uh, 
um, indicate that indeed there is a strong circumstantial evidence, I might say. There's a labyrinth, a labyrinth of tunnels uh, underneath Washington, D.C., starting at street level and going down hundreds, even thousands of feet. The Channel Tunnel that was between Britain and France beneath the seabed is fascinating. And the fact that that exists also tells us when that was created that we have to be way more advanced than that. Talk about the Channel Tunnel. Yeah, well, the Channel Tunnel, so-called the Channel, is the um, tunnel that goes down beneath the sea, beneath the, the southern reach of the of the North Sea, which is called the English Channel. Um, it could just as well be called the French Channel, I suppose, but it's called, at least by us, the English Channel. And the English and the French governments sponsored this tunnel and started tunnel-boring machines to work from both the English side and the French side uh, underneath the sea. And some years ago, they did complete this tunnel, back in the 1990s, I believe, and uh, connected it up, and it is now a, a, an undersea tunnel for high-speed uh, train, passenger train, and also freight train connection between France and England. It connects the rail networks of England and France, respectively. Fascinating. And, yes, and what this proves beyond the shadow of any doubt, is that even in the open engineering world, civil engineering world, mining engineering world, um, the technical capability now exists to make undersea tunnels using off-the-shelf tunnel-borne technology, undersea tunnels, for the purpose of installing uh, very high-speed train tracks that can accommodate High-speed, high-speed trains, both for cargo and for passengers. Uh, so let's just say that if the English and the French can do this, the Americans can certainly do it. And if it can be done under the North Sea, it can also be done under the Chesapeake Bay or under Lake Erie or under the eastern seaboard, under the continental shelf off the east coast or under the Gulf of Mexico. In other words, the principle has been proven the technology works. So what, in the English case, in the French case, they did this publicly. You can use the same technology and do it secretly if you want to. All you need is one or more tunnel boring machines, enough money to pay for the project, and trained crews to operate the tunnel boring machines, and off you go. But how do the crews stay down in the water with these tunnel boring machines? They're not, un- they're not in the water. They're down in the um, they're down in the geological strata beneath the seabed. They're not actually in the water at all, so you don't have to worry about that. Once you get down in the rock beneath the seabed, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're two thousand feet beneath the surface of the land or two thousand feet beneath the surface beneath the seafloor. Either way, you're down in the rock, so it doesn't matter. What about things like volcanoes? Because there's a lot of underwater volcanoes. I did an interview with Robert Felix and learned that. That's correct. That's correct. You would not want to tunnel through an underwater volcano because it would be the last act of your professional career. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, just there's some common sense involved here. Uh, You just don't tunnel through volcanoes. You go around them. It's like flying an airliner. You don't fly right through a hurricane. 
you fly around the hurricane, unless you're a hurricane hunter aircraft. But there's some common sense involved, and, and clearly there's no one uh, building a tunnel right through an active volcano. Uh, that absolutely would be a disaster. The point I'm making is that the technology exists and has been used to make undersea tunnels that accommodate high-speed train traffic. The Japanese have also built uh, an approximately 18-mile um, undersea tunnel between two of the Japanese islands. So there is that the advanced maglev train. I don't know if that is a maglev train. However, the high-speed maglev, maglev train do, technology does exist and is in use in the civilian world, however, in China. The Chinese and the Germans are far advanced of the Americans, at least in the open world, in the civil engineering world, in maglev train technology. And the Germans and the Chinese work together to build a high-speed maglev uh, passenger train uh, in the Shanghai, China area to bring um, passengers from the international airport in Shanghai actually into the city. That project has been up and running for some years. So the technology for high-speed maglev uh, passenger-carrying trains is known. Uh, it's been developed. It is in use in the public sector albeit in communist China. And the Germans and the Chinese and also the Japanese uh, are leading the world in this technology. Do you think we'll ever bring it here? I don't know. It won't be any time soon. You have to understand that the United States, and I'm sure you do, the United States is a country in rapid decline. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're not on the front of the, uh, of the leading edge of the bell curve of, of uh technological progress. We are on the trailing end. It is the Chinese, the Japanese, the Germans who are way ahead of us in a lot of areas. Um, we are lagging far behind and are objectively probably going to do worse as our economy collapses and as our government fiddles like Nero is re reported to have fiddled while Rome burned. Now, however, um, I have been told and my research strongly indicates that it is likely this maglev technology has been secretly uh, uh, deployed or, or built and, and is in use uh, in underground tunnels to which the general public is not uh, admitted. That research and that research and development started all the way back in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. Uh, there was a, a German engineer named Hermann Kemper, who all the way back in the early 30s uh, patented a concept for building a underground uh, vacuum tube, very high-speed maglev train system, which he called the Rohrbahn, meaning the, the empty tube or the vacuum tube train system. And it was to be a maglev train system that would travel hundreds, even thousands of miles per hour and he patented this all the way back in the early 1930s in Nazi Germany. He did research and design work on this all through the 1930s and even including during World War II. So already back then in the Nazi era, this technology was being researched. I don't know how far along the Nazis may have get, 
gotten with it. I don't know if they actually built high-speed maglev underground tube trains, uh, tube trade tunnels or not. Maybe they did, but whether they did or not, um, under Project Paperclip, any documentation pertaining to that and technology that may have been developed would have been uh, sucked up and brought to or, or grabbed and brought to the United States. There's no question of that, but certainly in the United States over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been many rumors, and I've heard some of them, of a secret high-speed underground uh, maglev train system that's being used uh, in great secrecy in top-secret projects by the alphabet soup agencies. Now, I have to say that I do, I do produce patents in my book, Official United States Government Patents, for just this type of technology, high-speed, underground, deeply buried, vacuum tube, maglev train tunnel systems. And it's also true that starting about in the mid-1960s and running up to the late 1970s or early 80s, that there was a, um, uh, there was a, a multi-agency program in the United States bringing together American government agencies um, like the Federal Railroad Administration, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Transportation, um, and and so forth, and academic um, engineering programs in, in the nation's major engineering schools, industry, uh, private and quasi-governmental think tanks, all sent experts and and contributed uh, technical expertise expertise to the so-called high-speed ground transportation program. It's called the High-Speed Transportation Initiative, correct? Yes, high-speed ground transportation initiative, and that that went forward uh, for about oh ten or fifteen years, and it, and it generated a great deal, uh, a huge paper trail, uh, a portion of which I cite in my book, um, Hidden in Plain Sight, and then it all went away and stopped being discussed. Well, don't you know it wasn't wasn't until just five years or so after that that people began, the rumors began about a secret high-speed maglev underground train system, which I found very interesting. I surmise that the whole thing didn't just go away. On the contrary, it just went black into the top-secret realm because the technology was perfected. And my suspicion is that in these days, um, there's a proven... Uh, black budget in the federal alphabet suit, uh, especially in the, the Pentagon, but not only in the Pentagon, of multiple trillions of dollars that cannot be accounted for. I want to read on page 111 some of the agencies you name. May I? Go right ahead. TRW, Parsons, Brinkeroff, Quaid and Douglas, General Dynamics, Westinghouse, MIT, Southwest Research Institute, General Electric, the U.S. Commerce Department, the U.S. Transportation Department, NASA, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, Alice Chalmers, Battelle Memorial Institute, the Pennsylvania Railroad, Long Island Railroad, etc., etc. Yes, uh, this was a, a, a serious effort, and as I said, it was an, a multi-agency effort bringing in personnel and technical expertise from a wide range of transportation agencies and organizations, federal agencies, 
engineering schools and departments, um, major corporations with advanced technological capabilities, and it was a real serious effort. Uh, they produced a lot of reports. They did a lot of studies. They had a lot of conferences, um, and then it all went away. What do you mean by it went away, meaning it wasn't public well, anymore? The public paper trail went away. Uh, there is no more uh, effort by that name. Uh, there's no, there's no um, uh, technology like that being developed in the public realm. Um, so it, it went away. But it, for about 10 or 15 years, um, it was all very much under active discussion and to a large degree was out in the public realm. Um, you could read articles about it if you knew where to look in, in technical publications and in, in industry um, journals and so forth. But then uh, it went away. It's no longer being discussed. It's no longer being written about. There are no longer conferences being held uh, working on this type of policy or project. So in that sense, it was there. It was being discussed. It was being worked on. And then it just all shut down. Can we talk about the pneumatic dispatch? Well, you have to understand that back in the 1860s, if you're looking at the um, genesis of this type of technology, it starts literally a century and a half ago, maybe even more. Um, starting in England, uh, it was realized early on in the age of steam, uh, before the American Civil War, that um, you could use steam pumps or steam engines to create a partial vacuum in a tube or a tunnel, an underground tube, uh, tunnel or an above-ground tube, and that you could then move freight, cargo of any kind to this tube, uh, because if you have less pressure at one end of a tube than you do at one end, whatever you put in the tube, assuming you have a reasonably um, tight air seal, will gravitate towards the low-pressure end of the tube. Um, so uh, this, is, this is basically the technology that a, that a, a blowgun uses. I mean, Indians in the Amazon have been using blowguns since whenever, and it's the same technology. The, the, the poison dart in the blow tube migrates from the high-pressure end of the blow tube to the low-pressure end. Is this the work of Alfred Eli Beach? That's what I'm getting around to. Okay. Um, so the technology is actually ancient. Um, and Alfred Eli Beach realized this, and after seeing what was being done in, in England, where, in fact, um, mail and, and cargo and even passengers, in some cases, were being moved through vacuum tubes under the impulse of, of partial pressure vacuums produced by steam technology, Alfred Eli Beach, who was... Uh, the, the publisher of the Scientific American, the well-known um, technical and scientific publication that's been around for a century and a half now. But in the Civil War era in the United States, Alfred Eli Beach was the publisher of the Scientific American. He became aware of this technology being developed in England and decided to introduce it to the United States. He did it by building the first working subway tunnel under Midtown Manhattan. He did this in the years immediately after uh, the Civil War by sending a tunneling team out secretly from the basement of a department store just off of Broadway. And they tunneled in the middle of the night 
underneath Broadway secretly. So this was the first black compartmentalized black project, tunneling project, if you will, but it was privately financed in the dead of night by Alfred Eli Beach. And what he did was ingenious. He used a large um, steam engine with a, an attached fan with big fan blades on it to effectively create a partial vacuum in this tunnel. The, the fan blades would, would rotate under the impetus of the a drivetrain from the steam engine, and as they made air move through the tunnel, they created a, a partial pressure because the air the pressure would be greater at one end of the tunnel where you had the fan working than at the other end. Um, and it would suck and or blow, blow, however you prefer to think of it, the air through the tunnel. And his idea was to then put uh, a rudimentary subway car in there on rails with, that tightly fit uh, the, uh, the tunnel walls, which was kind of an oval or a roundish shape. And then uh, the car would be naturally propelled to the tunnel by the differential air pressure. And so he, he built this thing and announced it to great public fanfare and actually gave rides to this tunnel for a period of weeks for free uh, to the public, to the general public, and it created a great deal of interest. His idea was to extend this uh, citywide and create an underground uh, public transportation system. In other words, he already, back in the 1860s, wanted to build a steam-powered vacuum tube subway tunnel system in New York. However, New York politics then as now was very criminally corrupt, and he didn't have the right political clout uh, to make this fly, and it wasn't until about three decades later that the first a uh, serious underground subway system in New York uh, began to be constructed. Is it like his technology, though? Is it similar? No, it's not. Okay. The technology that was in use uh, when it was finally built was steam, steam-drawn steam engines, steam train engines, and then ultimately electric. The trains today are electric, so it is not the same technology. However, it could have been used, and that has been recognized by subsequent people who have patented high-speed underground train systems. They have drawn on what Alfred Eli Beach was doing already back in the in 1860s. And Alfred Eli Beach, even in his published writings back in the 1860s, recognized that with the technological um, expertise available to him then, in theory, he could have get, gotten his subway cars up to a speed of about 100 miles per hour. In other words, as he said, four times faster than the fastest uh, steam-driven railroad engines of that era. And he said that because he recognized, as he states elsewhere in his writings, that air rushes into a vacuum at more than 600 miles per hour. So he already recognized back in the 1860s, you know, if I could get this thing perfected, in theory, I could get a train moving through a tunnel at several hundred miles per hour. So this was recognized in the scientific and engineering community already in the mid-19th uh, century. It's just that um, it was hard to get it up to speed using the technology they had then. However, we have the technology now more than a century later to make really smooth tunnel walls because we have 
tunnel boring machines that can make very smooth and straight uh, tunnels deep underground. So that engineering impediment has been removed. There is now no reason at all why you can't have very fast train transportation underground. I mean at the speeds that commercial airliners go and even faster, potentially. How fast does the tube in London go and what technology moves the tube in London? The tube in London uses the same technology that's used for the New York subway or the or the metro in Paris or the metro in Moscow or or Marta in Atlanta, etc. It's just um, a conventional subway train is what it amounts to. I've read I've I've ridden the tube in London and um, some of the tube tunnels are way down. You 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 take escalators that go so far down you feel like you're going to the very bowels of the earth. But those tunnels were made decades ago, um, just as the tunnels were, you know, a century ago even in some cases or more, just as many of the tunnels were in New York City. So those are conventional subway trains that are electrically um, propelled. I want to talk about three other people that you mentioned. The reason I'm bringing up their names and the dates is I really think it adds to the evidence base of how far this technology has come. In 1944, you talk about Robert Goddard's vacuum tube shuttle patent application. You talk about, in the 1970s, Michael Minovich's patent high-speed vacuum tunnel system. And then in 1972, Robert Salter's VHST system by the RAND Corporation going 14,000 miles per hour. Can you talk about these people? Oh, yes. Well, Robert Goddard, of course, is known as the father of modern rocketry and carried out his uh, really groundbreaking uh, rocket tests in Roswell, New Mexico in the 1930s. Of course, the Nazis and others built on his um, research later in the 30s and in the 1940s. But um, our modern um, missile, ballistic missile and rocket technology is based on, on Robert Goddard's groundbreaking research in the 1930s. Now, in the World War II period and after, he also uh, carried out some other uh, research and design work, if only conceptually, and one of the one of the patents he came up with was for just this. And again, drawing on the earlier work, not only of Eli Beach but of Hermann Kemper, uh, the German engineer in the Third Reich. And Robert Goddard's patent called for a very high speed uh, tube train underground tube train tunnel system. And Robert Goddard and his scheme called for a shuttle train to go coast to coast. In, in minutes, at a speed of, of over 10,000 miles per hour, like 14,000 miles per hour. Uh, so that's already back in the 1940s he was talking about that. He took Hermann Kemper's scheme. Hermann Kemper was only talking about a, a maglev underground uh, vacuum tube train that would go, say, between 600 to 2,000 miles per hour, something like that. But Robert Goddard took a look at the same technology and said to himself, hey, I can make this go even faster, like, you know, 10 times faster. And so that was his scheme for a very high-speed underground uh, vacuum tube maglev train. Michael Minovich came, came along in the 1970s and also came up with a, 
a similar scheme, a, a bit slower, but a lot deeper. And Michael Minovich, you have to understand, is the guy who, as a young scientist and a young graduate student at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, came up with the series of equations uh, that makes possible uh, the, the deep space probes that NASA sends to Jupiter, to Neptune, uh, to Pluto, to Uranus, and even out of the solar system in some cases. Uh, because he developed a series of equations that enables uh, deep space probes to use gravity, the gravity well, if you will, of one planet to slingshot uh, a deep space probe even further deep into space much faster than it could have otherwise gone using just the boost that it gives, gives from chemical rockets lifting off from the Earth's surface. Now, Michael Minovich... Um, in other words, was using, uh, uh, and through his equations, the gravitational attraction of a planet to boost a vehicle to a very high speed in outer space. He took a very similar um, approach to designing a deep underground uh, high-speed vacuum tube train system, maglev train system, only in, in this case, he would use a planet's gravitational field, the Earth's gravitational field in this instance, to accelerate a vehicle in inner space instead of outer space. And he would accelerate the vehicle downward uh, on a downward slope, albeit deep underground, to high speed, riding on an electromagnetic field. So there'd be very little friction, and it would be in a vacuum tube, an underground tunnel from which the air had been evacuated, so there would be no air friction and very little friction from wheels because there wouldn't be any wheels. You would only have a, uh, an electromagnetic um, uh, field that the train would be suspended on, and it would zoom it at airliner speed, like 700 miles per hour, uh, through this tunnel deep underground going as much as three or four miles underground or more. So that was Michael Minovich's scheme patented, I think, in 1979, something like that. So we have uh, these multiple schemes. How about Robert Salter? Well, here, the thing with Robert Salter is uh, he's also a well-known uh, uh, figure from the world of, of, of American science and engineering. Um, and Robert Salter's scheme built on the work of all of these other men and Robert Salter was commissioned by the Rand Corporation, which is well known for working for the American Alphabet Soup Agencies and for corporations on all kinds of uh, cutting-edge uh, engineering projects and scientific research and so forth. They've been at it for years, and the Rand Project is well known for doing studies going back to the 1950s on the construction of underground tunnels and underground bases. Uh, so this is nothing new for the RAND Corporation, but the RAND Corporation commissioned Robert Salter uh, to do a study on building a so-called plane train system, P-L-A-N hyphen T-R-A-N, uh, intercontinental, transcontinental, deeply buried, extremely high-speed underground uh, train system along the lines of what these other men that I've been discussing in the last few minutes I'd taken out patents for. 
And under the RAND Corporation study, um, the idea was to build uh, a transcontinental system that would connect multiple cities and would go coast to coast again at about 14, 15,000 miles per hour deep underground using a very high speed maglev train system and would go say from New York City to California in uh, 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah, you said at 14,000 miles an hour, 21 minutes from LA to New York. Fascinating. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so I think, uh, I think Robert Goddard's scheme actually, uh, actually envisioned the same trip in under 10 minutes. I think in the Robert Salter scheme, they do allow for one, one, one stop in between, you know, maybe at Dallas or Memphis or so forth. And then, <clears throat> Going all the way, but with side side tunnels going to other other cities and other destinations with feeder tunnels. So so we have this out there in the technical literature. Um, it's not something that I came up with off the top of my head. It's a scheme that has been uh, well discussed, well planned, researched and designed, researched and designed up, down, and sideways. Uh, and I'm told that it. It does exist. Um, there, I've heard rumors about it, and there are people who say that these tunnels with the high-speed trains zooming through them do exist deep underground. And in fact, the Robert Salter uh, Rand study um, goes out of its way, and Salter observes that um, in principle and in practice, there's nothing at all to prevent this system from being extended right out under the world's oceans and going into having an intercontinental system that would connect, for example, North America and Europe using a circumpolar route. And in fact, he says, um, it's very technically feasible because once you're down in the, in the bedrock, you're beneath the ocean. And anyway, anyway, if you choose the route carefully, you can, you can ensure that at no place would you be more than one mile under sea. So, um, that's certainly well within the technical capabilities of the American uh, uh, mining engineering and geological engineering expertise. Let's talk a little bit about, if we can, Parsons and the Otis Elevator Company. Can we start with Parsons and talk about some of the work that they do and the areas that they specialize in? Yes. Well, my understanding is that there are two companies. There's one called Parsons, and there's another um, a corporate entity that over the years and the decades has been called Parsons, Quaid, uh, uh, Brinkerhoff, and Douglas, I believe. And it has, uh, both of these entities have been involved uh, multiple times down to the decades in building a wide variety of underground facilities, including for um, multiple government agencies. And they interface with other corporations with um, cutting-edge civil engineering and underground excavation technology and expertise. So these companies' names pop up again and again in the underground excavation and civil engineering literature. They're well-known in the industry. They're not the only ones, but they're certainly two well-known ones. I've been told in one case that Parsons has built... uh, an underground facility, uh, undersea facility beneath the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I've been told about other manned bases 
beneath the sea floor in the Gulf of Mexico, and I believe that they do exist. Can we stay with the Gulf of Mexico for just a moment? In reading your book on page 43, it says that they did construction under the seabed in the Gulf of Mexico, 2,800 feet deep, and that they were the premier contractor for this and that the work that they were doing was to share petroleum down there. Do you think that possibly this had to do with the Gulf oil spill? Or do you think it's just a coincidence that really is not connected, but maybe there was something that happened down there? You know, I, anything I would say would be speculation. I can only say that the entire, um, the entire uh, uh, scenario with, with the British Petroleum Gulf of Mexico uh, disaster is it's bizarre, it's strange. There are certainly things that we, the general public, have not been told about that whole episode. Um, there's no doubt that the behavior of British Petroleum and the United States government, multiple agencies within the United States government, has been bizarre by any ordinary standard, whether we're talking about the U.S. Coast Guard, the Minerals Management Service, or the spin control that's come out of the Obama White House um, it's all just highly strange. So I don't know what really happened. I can only tell you that something went very badly wrong and was not fixed and probably even is not fixed and cannot be fixed to this day. So whether there may have been anything to do with um, some type of manned undersea facility, I can't say. I simply don't know. I can tell you that the technology exists to make manned facilities beneath the seafloor in the Gulf of Mexico. I can tell you that I've been told there are bases uh, down <clears throat> beneath the Gulf of Mexico on the seafloor and beneath the seafloor, <clears throat> but um, I have to leave it there because I am not working inside of any compartmentalized project, and I've never had a security clearance. So in terms of my, of my research, there's a certain point to which I can go, and beyond that, I remain with my nose uh, pressed up against the glass, the, pressed up against the nose of Alice in, in, in Wonderland's looking glass, if you will, trying to peer in and decipher what's going on. Okay. And, and through my research, I have figured out quite a lot uh, because of what I've done. We do know a great deal more than we knew 15 or 20 years ago. But Richard, talk about Otis, will you? Well, Otis Elevator uh, was for a time the um, largest elevator company in the world. They've been eclipsed now, though, by Thiessen, uh, and I believe Thiessen is actually joined with, uh, with the Krupp company. Thiessen is a German company, T-H-Y-S-S-E-N, and it's a German company that's come all the way down from the Nazi era, uh, as has Siemens and some other. Um, Nazi engineering back in the 30s and 40s was really the best in the world. Um, and German technology to this day remains some of the best in the world, if not in some cases the best in the world. So um, German engineering prowess has been at a very high level uh, really for the past century. Didn't Otis lead the way, though, in terms of building a mile-high elevator? For many years, Otis was the world leader in elevators. Uh, I, I think now, though, they have been eclipsed by Thiessen. I really do. But Otis, for a long time, was. And um, if there are 
high-speed elevators going deep underground. There's no question that Otis built a lot of them in past decades. But these days, um, it's I think Thiessen has probably really taken the industry lead. But whether it's Otis or Thiessen or some of the other elevator companies, and there are others as well, um, it's 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 beyond dispute that you can use a high-speed elevator to go up as well as to go down. The technology is precisely identical in either case. In either instance, you're dealing with an enclosed shaft. Now, it may be an enclosed shaft headed up 1,000 feet to the top of a skyscraper in Dubai or Seoul, Korea or New York City, or it could just as well be an elevator headed 1,000 feet straight down, again, in an enclosed shaft that's going to an underground um, tunnel or an underground base. Now, the mining industry uses uses elevators, and the mining industry goes thousands of feet underground all the time, and and men are routinely carried in elevators to two, 3,000 feet underground or more, in the copper mines, in the gold mines, in the iron mines, in the tin mines, etc., silver mines, whatever. That's a long way down, Richard. That's a long way down. But there are men who go underground hundreds and thousands of feet every day. When I was younger, for a brief time, I was a, a, a salt miner, and I've ridden, um, you know, the, I, I've gone underground. I mean, I used to go 800 feet underground, and I'd go down with 15 or 20 men. You get in the elevator, and you go down a shaft straight down. So there are men, and some women, too, doing this every day. It's routine. It happens every day, all the time. I didn't know you were a salt miner at some point. Briefly. You have many lives like a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about and, Detroit? Um, yeah, I, I, I worked for Morton Salt, which is now the Morton Thiokol Corporation. But the point is that what is done openly in the mining industry can certainly be done in the black world uh, by government agencies, by military agencies, by by large corporations, uh, they just take the technology that's used for skyscrapers and reverse it. Instead of going straight up, they go straight down. Um, and it's it, it's easy for Tizen to do that or, or any of the ele- other elevator com- companies. Uh, Otis didn't did that in the past. In fact, I was told that Otis at one time, and maybe still does, they have their own underground facility uh, for their own corporate use. And by the way, uh, there are uh, corporations who do have their own underground facilities. Do we know of any besides Halliburton? <laughs> AT&T has many underground facilities all over the country. Uh, many of them go down two or three levels. Some of them go down six, seven levels or more. Um, and that's well known. AT&T has been uh, building, operating, maintaining underground facilities for decades. What about the oil platforms that have elevators in their legs? I thought that was fascinating. Talk about that for a little bit. Yes, oil platforms, um, and there are just hundreds, if not thousands of these now around the world. Wherever you have offshore oil fields, you have these um, oil platforms. If the water is too deep, the legs cannot extend all the way to the seafloor. But in shallower waters of a few hundred feet or, 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 or shallower, um, it's pretty routine for oil rigs to have legs 
giant legs that extend from the platform down to the seafloor and are actually embedded into the seafloor to support the platform. It is a fact that in some of these some of these platforms, you have you have machinery and instruments inside the legs, and uh, this machinery and these instruments need to be maintained and monitored and repaired when something goes wrong. And so for personnel to get down there, um, some of these legs are so large, you can actually have elevators, industrial elevators, that go down in the legs and take technicians and repairmen down there to take care of the machinery, to fix it, to monitor it, to maintain it, uh, and so forth, to fine-tune it, whatever. Um, So... This is routine in the offshore petroleum industry. Now, it's also the case that um, it wouldn't be hard at all to just extend the elevators down into the seafloor. This is one more way, one more means of accessing the seafloor. And I've been told this has happened in some cases and that not all oil platforms are purely and simply oil platforms. That that some of them may have another use above and beyond being an oil production platform. You mean just as a transport mechanism? Well, it would be a means of accessing the subsea floor environment without attracting attention. What do they do for oxygen, Richard? Oh well, it's easy to generate oxygen from seawater. Um, you don't even need to take oxygen under uh, the seafloor with you. The United States Navy, uh, already back in the 1950s, I believe, developed equipment for using electrolysis, which which high school chemistry students do. This is an experiment that anyone can do with very simple, um, even high school level laboratory apparatus, is to uh, split the oxygen out of out of the seawater. Now, of course, the water molecule is H2O, and so every Water molecule has an oxygen atom. So, so using electrolysis, passing an electrical current through the water, um, you can split these molecules and the oxygen will bubble free. Um, you can collect the oxygen and uh, simply uh, use it for breathing. Um, the Navy also developed and also NASA technology that permits carbon dioxide to be scrubbed out of the air. Uh, and it's used on the space station, for example. It's also used in submarines underway, uh, under sea. So through using these two technologies, scrubbing the air of CO2 that builds up and also generating oxygen from seawater, um, it's easy, and the technology has been around for well over half a century, to provide a breathable atmosphere indefinitely in an enclosed space, whether it's a nuclear submarine, uh, patrolling for weeks or months under sea, or whether it's a, a space capsule or a space station in orbit around the Earth, or whether it's an enclosed space in a manned installation uh, hundreds of feet or even thousands of feet beneath the seafloor. That technology was developed already in the middle of the 20th century and has been in use for a long time. Wow. The Subtropolis in Kansas City, Missouri. And is it Miss Lamar Hunt's yes. underground Hunt city? Family. What is that? Well, the Hunt family, of course, are, are the well-known Texas billionaires, the Texas tycoons. Um, 
sort of J.R. Ewing, sort of J.R. Ewing types in a sense, but they're just filthy rich. They have all kinds of money, and they they own real estate and properties all over the place. One of their uh, vast holdings is so-called Subtropolis in the Kansas City area. The Subtropolis is an underground industrial and and, and commercial facility. It's uh, um, it's built out of or is is located in um, excavated limestone mines. That region of the country is underlain by an extensive uh, layer of limestone, a stratum of limestone. Could we visit that city? I don't know. It's private. I, I suppose if you had business, you could go in and, and deliver your business card and make a business call. It's not It's not um, close to the public in the sense that it's, it's classified or... or What's it called, Richard? Subtropolis. Just like that. It's called Subtropolis. There are companies down there doing business, just miles and miles and miles of roadways, uh, tractor-trailer trucks routinely, routinely uh, take cargo, uh, truckloads of, of goods to and from Subtropolis. There are offices and warehouses down there, loading docks, uh, the whole nine yards. It's quite a large and elaborate facility that just sprawls for miles. Uh, a couple hundred feet beneath uh, beneath um, Kansas City. It's been there for decades. It's quite big. Uh, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people working down there. It's like a city beneath a city. That's why it's you know you have the metropolis of Kansas City, and then you have the the, the subtropolis uh, beneath Kansas City, and there are people living and working in both environments, and have been for many years. I wonder, I wonder what Dorothy would think. <laughs> well. It's not Dorothy's Kansas anymore. I know. She would she would feel that she was down the rabbit hole is what she would think. She would think she was in, in Alice's rabbit hole. Um, the, the the thing is that this this demonstrates so beautifully that in this case, the subtropolis beneath Kansas City is publicly known. It's not it's not um Secret or top secret? It's not. How did you stumble upon this information and able I, to verify I did a lot it? of research? Uh, it's not actually secret. Subtropolis is not secret. Uh, it's it, it's publicly known, and if you want to look into it, you can. Uh, Subtropolis actually has its own website. Uh, it is a, a happening place. In fact, if you wanted to have your own warehouse down there and you had the money, I imagine you could. Um, or if you wanted to have an office down there or store some documents or, or can have a broadcast studio in, in Subtropolis, I imagine you could if, you, if you're able to pay the rent or, or buy a space down there. But the idea is that um, this is, the concept has been proved. In other words, you can have an underground beehive, so to speak, or anthill beneath a major city. In this case, it's publicly known. There's nothing to stop, stop using the same technology, the same mining technology, the same everything. You could also have an elaborate, deeply buried complex with hundreds or even thousands of people underneath any other city. But if you kept it secret, rather than putting up a website advertising your your complex, then no one would know. That's the point I'm making. And I presume that that has been done. I would love to visit there. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, why don't you go to Kansas City? And, well, I uh, think I'm going to. I think I'm going to do that and, and say hello. I would be a little nervous about how far an elevator would take me down there. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a network there. Maybe there's more than one elevator. I don't know. Maybe there's the elevator uh, for the open part. Maybe there's a secret part. I don't know, but... Um, Subtropolis does exist. Sounds very interesting, though, and when I'm in Kansas, I will definitely give a call or a knock at the door, and I would love the website address to be able to figure that out. (laughs) Well, I think I have the the website right there in the footnotes if you want to look. Okay. Ocean Works International has built the Suit 2000, the Hand Suit 2000, 1000, and 1200, and also the Gym Suit 2000 that allows them to go to deeper depths. How do they breathe in these suits? Well, you know, um, if you think about what we just said, uh, the technology for providing breathable air in a deep underwater environment is extremely advanced. It's almost science fiction-like, and they have air scrubbers. Uh, they can stay down about eight hours or so. So, of course, they can take oxygen tanks, but through a combination of oxygen tanks and air scrubbers, it's really not an issue and has not been for, for, for years and years. The amazing thing to me about these suits is that they can go uh, something on the order of 2,000 feet underwater, which is way down there. And they enable uh, divers, both for the military and also in private industry, to carry out uh, heavy construction and major industrial operations at very great depth undersea. I would also have to say, in my experience, if in the open engineering world you're reading about a diving suit or diving capability to go 2,000 feet underwater, uh, in my experience, it's likely that the capability in the black world probably exceeds that, and there's probably technology that enables divers to go even deeper. But already, even 2,000 feet is very, very... Pretty remarkable. You say here these suits have fans that recirculate oxygen and a carbon dioxide scrubbing capability. The holes are aluminum with digital voiceover communications, vertical and lateral thrusters, pan and tilt video cameras, and color imaging sonar. Oceanworks provides hard suits for the militaries of the USA, Japan, Turkey, France, Russia, and Italy. These suits are in commercial use in Brazil, Australia, Japan, Canada, United Kingdom, and the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. Yes, and that's just off of the website of the company. So I presume that's what, what's happening in the black world. They tell you point blank that they work with the militaries of a number of different countries. Um, so I presume what they do with the militaries of these various countries probably exceeds what they have posted for public view on their corporate website. What about the liquid breathing solution? The U.S. Navy classified the fact that there are liquid breathing fluorocarbon solution and saline solutions, almost like the abyss. Talk about that. That was fascinating. Yeah, well, it is very much like the abyss. If, if anyone has ever, if any of the listeners has seen that movie, it's fascinating. I watched it and it was it was gripping, but one of the concepts explored in that movie is that United States military special forces, in this case Navy personnel, 
um, have an underwater breathing capability that is a liquid breathing capability, and that they don't have gills, although, although with genetic engineering today, who knows, but that they don't have gills. However, uh, they do use uh, a kind of fluorocarbon um, compound to enable them to uh, breathe liquid deep underwater and get around the problem of the bends that it that has traditionally been a huge issue for deep underwater divers. Now, it's interesting. I took that premise, and I went and looked in the scientific literature, and I discovered that there is some basis to indicate that might be the case, that the Navy might indeed have a special forces deep underwater liquid breathing capability because um, the Navy, years ago, actually funded um, some... Uh, liquid breathing research that had promising results and indicated that, um, indeed, it was feasible within some parameters. And then it's also true that in, and by the way, I believe this research was carried out at Duke University Medical School um, under a United States uh, Naval Research Lab grant, and this was decades ago. They were using animals, right, to do this? Yeah, well, you understand if they used human subjects, it would have been, been a compartmentalized project. Um, you wouldn't find a paper trail for that. Um, but this, this was documentation from the open scientific literature. And it's also interesting that the open medical literature reveals that with premature babies, it's quite common to use similar compounds uh, when they have respiratory distress when, when, a, when an infant comes out of the womb, they're going from a fluid breathing environment where their lungs are full of fluid, amniotic fluid, and then they're coming out into an air breathing environment. It's an abrupt transmission. It's a, a, a change. It is traumatic for the child, especially for pre- premature infants who may not be able to make the adjustment to an air breathing environment and may die if they're not and able to make a transition from the fluid breathing environment in the womb or to the fluid-filled lung environment in, in the womb to the air-filled, air-filled lung environment outside the womb. So it's, it's, it's state-of-the-art in the, now in the medical field to help assemble these premature infants, these preemies, and give them a liquid solution to help jumpstart their lungs, so to speak, it, and make the transition from the womb to air breathing. So, so this is done. Uh, this is known by medical science and used uh, in hospitals. I never knew that. Never uh, heard of this. Uh, wow. I discussed this, I discussed this in my book. It's maybe not done for every premature infant, but in some cases it can be done and, and is done. So those two pieces of evidence suggest to me that, uh, the Navy may have made a breakthrough years ago, and that what we see in open medical literature and open literature from the Navy study may um, be merely an indication of what is happening in the black world. And James Cameron, I believe, produced The Abyss, um, and he may, because he's the kind of guy that has, you know, when you're a, uh, an A-list, uh, Hollywood producer, someone like James Cameron, you know a lot of people in government, in industry, 
in entertainment and high finance. And so you hear a lot of rumors, a lot of tidbits and pieces of information would come your way. So for a guy like James Cameron, it may be that he, he, he was uh, quietly tipped off that Navy, U.S. Navy Special Forces had such a, a capability. I don't know, but what was interesting to me was that when I went looking uh, for literature to see if indeed the United States Navy did have anything like that, I found some circumstantial evidence indicating that, you know what, just maybe they do. Fascinating, really fascinating. In the context of a remote-operated vehicle, what's the distinction between a submarine and a submersible? Submersibles are generally smaller, uh, is my understanding, than the submarines. Uh, but they both submerse in the water. Uh, submarines usually have military purposes and have um, a crew of one or 200 people or more in some cases. Uh, they usually carry weapons, uh, that type of thing, whereas submersibles are usually smaller, uh, don't have as large of a crew, uh, would usually not have weapons and would usually be used for industrial purposes or scientific research purposes or engineering purposes, con construction purposes, that kind of thing. Now, that is my general layman's understanding. I am not <laughs> an expert, a, a naval expert, but that is my understanding from, from what I have read. What do you think Howard Hughes was doing with the Howard Hughes Global Marine Company? Well, you see, that's the question. At least two, maybe three levels to this story. Number one, Howard Hughes was extremely secretive. Number two, Howard Hughes had the, the Hughes Tool Company. He was extremely wealthy. Number three, he worked for a variety of different government agencies, um, openly and in the black world. Number four, the Hughes Tool Company, way back in the 50s and 60s, was one of the first to investigate and develop um, deep underground drilling and tunnel boring capability. Uh, so he was a, a real leader, technological leader, in the field of underground excavation and uh, mining engineering. And five, back in the period when the Glomar Explorer and Glomar Challenger were built, these were, this has been some years ago, a few decades back, where... Um, Hugh Tools Company, for reasons that a lot of people didn't understand at the time, built these ships, the Glomar Explorer and the Glomar Challenger. Um, Glomar, Glom, Glomar being an acronym for Global Marine. Global Marine was one of uh, Howard Hughes' companies. And so they built these Global Marines, so-called Glomar vessels. And the story floated was that um, this new technology, these new ships were being developed for undersea mining, allegedly to grab things like manganese nodules off the seafloor. Well, that was the public story. In fact, it appears that the CIA was using this technology to go after a Russian nuclear missile firing submarine that had sunk um, not too far from the Hawaiian Islands, and it was many thousands of feet undersea. And the CIA wanted to grab these submarines to take a look at Russian submarine technology, Russian missile missile technology, Russian uh, nuclear warhead technology, etc. And so Howard Hughes was un unleashed to covertly develop the technology to go out 
and grab these things from the seafloor and bring them back. Pretty amazing stuff. There's so much stuff that we don't know, but the fact that all these technologies are available, that all of these realms are happening while we're here on the ground level. That's the second level of the story, uh, which was revealed in, in a book entitled Silent War by John Pena Craven, who at that time was the lead scientist for the United States Navy's uh, deep undersea programs, um, um, undersea warfare project. And so he reveals this in his book. And I must say that, that, that I believe uh, the Glomar vessels also had a third capability, which was to carry out construction of deep-sea, undersea bases down on the seafloor. Have to understand that one of these vessels has now been uh, reconfigured and is at work in the Gulf of Mexico, drilling uh, deep exploratory holes for the um, offshore oil industry. So they have that kind of capability, and they have had for decades. My strong supposition is that in the past, and maybe even today, uh, they're still used for that purpose which from the start may have been to aid in underground construction, undersea construction of manned bases. Understand that it was only several years before that that the U.S. Navy published its uh, famous rock site document, which I also cite in my books, which detailed an R&D program for constructing manned uh, bases down in the bedrock, deep beneath the seafloor, in mid-ocean, and this this was taking place in the mid-1960s. That's when the Navy had a very serious research and design effort for this. And I've talked to a, a few of the men who were involved in this. Uh, there's no question the program went on. There's documentation for it on the open record. Uh, and it's interesting that the Stanford Research Institute in California, which at the, that time was associated with Stanford University, also uh, published its own document about the feasibility of manned in-bottom bases that came at the same time period in the 1960s, uh, revealed that it was then technologically feasible to make manned bases down in the bedrock beneath the seafloor and to put them well out to sea. Um, so there was more than one agency, more than one think tank working on this technology already back in the 1960s. And now we do have stories of people talking about these bases. I, I've spoken to people who say they exist, that they have personal knowledge either of them being built or, or, or seeing them or going there. Um, I, I don't have any question it's been done. The only question I have is how many of them are there and who is in them? At a minimum, it seems like certain uh, major corporations and, and military agencies. Do you want to share a little bit about David Adair? Yeah. I don't know him personally. Talk a little bit about your background, your understanding of who he is and things that he thinks and well, says. I'll tell you what he says. Okay. I don't know him personally. He says that years ago at the age of 17 that he was taken underground at Area 51 on a massive elevator about the size of a football field, that he was taken underground into a cavernous workspace where he saw advanced aerospace technology, uh, some of which he believes was alien, that he was shown um, 
uh, uh, some kind of alien uh, propulsion motor or system that seemed to be uh, far beyond the cap- technological technological capability uh, of the United States in the last part of the 20th century, and that it seemed to him that this this engine was self-aware uh, and it interacted with 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 his consciousness while he was looking at it. Um, I don't know what to make of that story, frankly. Um, I wasn't there. That's his claim. However, certain aspects of it do dovetail with what other people have said. There are other people who have spoken to um, very large underground facilities at Area 51, and other people have certainly uh, spoken about recovered extraterrestrial or off-planet technology that the United States has in its possession. So, well, I wasn't there, and I, I can't say for 100 certain that uh, what he says is true. Enough elements of his story dovetail with other uh, pieces of information that I have gotten that I'm willing uh, to to say that um, there may be something to his story. What does he do now? I don't know what he does now. I don't know, David Adair, beyond this, beyond this story, which I found which I cite that, that was published in Nexus magazine, um, and that's the extent of what I know. Um, I can't vouch for David Adair, what I, and I won't vouch for him because I don't personally know him. What I can say is that certain elements of his story do dovetail with, with other aspects of my research, and I included it for that reason in my book. Now, I would go beyond that and say that there is a researcher named Ryan Wood who's published a book and some other writings. Is that Bob Wood's son? Yes. I interviewed Bob Wood on television in 2003. Yes. Well, his his son, Ryan, is also well worth interviewing in his own right. In fact, Ryan has really taken a torch from from Bob Wood. And what Ryan has, has demonstrated in his most recent book is that there are, and I, I also cite this book in, in Hidden in Plain Sight, uh, what Ryan Wood has done is um, demonstrate that there are literally scores of UFO crash retrievals that have been carried out over the last, say, 70 years or so. And many of them have been carried out by the United States military. Most serious researchers that I know accept it as a given that the United States military has recovered uh, this type of hardware, these types of craft, and that they are simply lying about it. Um, his book is entitled Magic, Magic Eyes Only. Um, it's well worth reading. I've read it myself. And, in fact, um, I surmise that this would be another function, probably, of Howard uses Glomar ships, a ship that could retrieve a, a Russian submarine or at least part of it from thousands of feet underwater from the seafloor would also be able to retrieve, oh, say if the United States Navy shot down a UFO at sea and they knew it crash-landed at XYZ coordinates, then they could also send a ship like the Glomar Challenger, Glomar Explorer, out to retrieve the wreckage uh, from thousands of feet underwater. I strongly suspect that has gone on. In fact, I cite two cases in my book of um, UFOs crashing offshore and, 
and some uh, alleged United States Navy um, involvement in retrieving the technology. I strongly surmise that this has happened uh, more than once. Over the many years that you've been researching these subjects and publishing, have you ever had some strange experiences or concerning experiences where you felt that your well-being was in question? Not really. Um, in a, and I understand the fear a lot of people have. In my case, um, I do have a residual level of fear. I mean, I'm like anyone else. I can't say nothing phases me. That wouldn't be true. At the same time, I feel the information is very important. And so, in spite of whatever uh, small fears I may have as I go along, um, I do it anyway. Um, and I once had a dream in, in which I was told by, by someone or something in the dream that what makes me different from other people is that I act in spite of my fear. It's not that I don't have fear. I do. But I do it anyway. Have you ever had your life threatened? Yes, but not directly because of this research. Um, well, I'll take that back. I did, <laughs> in fact, have my life threatened because of this research. One of my sources one time told me, in, in no uncertain words, that I better uh, stay on my toes and mind my P's and Q's because um, I could be whacked pretty easily if I got out of line. But what does that mean? You're already published. Whatever you're saying is already done. It's out there in the public domain. So what does that mean? I wasn't as well known then. It means I'd better be careful. And I am careful. Um, I try not to betray personal confidences. And at this time, I've spoken to a boatload of people, um, some of whom have current or previous security clearances, some of whom were in the military whether uniformed or non-uniform, some of whom are in the civil service and other agencies, some of whom have family or friends who are in the military or who worked for one or more of the civil agencies, some of whom just know things, um, have heard things, or, or come across information who, who are not connected with the military or, or civil agencies or industry at all, but who may have been uh, shanghaied into a program or project against your will, and I've talked to some people like that, too. Um, but I've talked to a lot of people over the last, what, 18, 18 years now? I've just talked to a lot of people in all walks of life, all over the country, young and old. They just span the gamut. And the picture that is in focus for me real clearly right now is there are a lot of underground and underwater bases. Some of them are publicly known, but by no means all. And there's a lot of G-Wiz technology down there. There are projects and programs going on, some of which would positively curl people's hair. Um, and some of it is just so off the wall, I don't even... Some of the things I've been told, I don't even know what to think. I don't put everything I know in my books, primarily because I don't know how to deal with it, some of, some of it myself. So, so by no means have I put everything out uh, for public consumption, not always be, be because of fear of my well-being, although I certainly know some things that I wouldn't necessarily say outright, um, but in some cases simply because I don't know what to say or how to say it or whether I should say it. But I'll, 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 I'll tell you this much. 
there is an awful lot in my books. And I say quite a lot of what I do know in my books. I mean an awful lot. And just going from what's in my books, that alone will tell you that we are living in a world of illusion and delusion and deceit. We have been massively lied to. We have been misled. We have been misinformed. We have been disinformed. And we have been ripped off because it's it's our money that's being used to build all of this just by the billions and the hundreds of billions. And for all I know, the trillions. We do know that trillions of dollars are being sucked out of the economy to somewhere for something what? There's, there are vast programs and projects and undercurrents that are taking place. And we're in the dark. I'm like a man fumbling in the dark, but even at that, I've managed to fumble and stumble and bumble my way to some real discoveries. I have made some discoveries and found some some very important information, and it's in hidden in plain sight beyond the X-Files, uh, and anyone who wants can go and read it. They don't have to go and do 20 years or 18 years of research research like I did because I distilled down a lot of the high points into that book. So already, anyone who reads that book is 20 years ahead on the learning curve of where I was myself 20 years ago. And that's a tremendous step forward for all of us. In other words, one man's step forward, my own, advances all of us, a giant kangaroo leap forward. So you can benefit from my efforts. Ladies and gentlemen, you can order Richard's books at keyholepublishing.com, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. And Richard, there's so much more to discuss with you. I'd like to have you back another time. And I want to ask you one small question <laughs> before we end. Yes. And that is, with all of your research... Connecting the dots of what's happening, do you think that there is still a creator? More so than ever. That's what I'd like to have a completely separate conversation with you about. I'd like you to hold that thought. The creator and the general tendency of the universe is for good ultimately to prevail. And I would also say in that regard, I have a second book also out this year entitled the Richard Souter Briefing. And that book is avail- available uniquely at Amazon.com. That is The Richard Souter Briefing. My underground basis books are available at KeyholePublishing.com. Richard, thank you so much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Again, you can reach Richard at KeyholePublishing.com. I look forward to you coming back and being our guest again. Wonderful, Kim. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Richard. 